Hello, and welcome to Monumental, where we sit down with entrepreneurs, leaders, visionaries, and big thinkers making monumental change. Here's your host, Evan Holliday. Welcome to Monumental. I'm your host, Evan Holliday, and today on the show, we have Neil Bawa. Neil is founder and CEO of Grow Capitus a commercial real estate investment company. Neil sources, negotiates, and acquires commercial properties across the U.S. for 300-plus investors. Current portfolio is over 1,800 units or beds, uh, projected to be at 3,000 in 12 months. That's some crazy growth, Neil. So the portfolio includes multifamily and student housing properties in eight U.S. states. Neil also speaks at multifamily events, IRA events, and meetups across the country, with nearly 4,000 students attending his multifamily seminar series each year and hundreds attending his Magic of Multifamily Boot Camps. Neil is the co-founder of the largest multifamily investing meetup network in the U.S., BAMF, a group of investors that has over 4,000 members. Neil, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm really excited to be on Monumental. Yes, making Mm -hmm. monumental change. I love it. Um, so let's just jump right in and go into a little bit of your background and, and how you got into multifamily and where you are today. Sure. Well, I, I'm you know not the typical real estate guy. I haven't done a hundred loans. I haven't flipped a thousand homes. I'm a technologist that basically fell into real estate, um, you know, by accident uh, through my day job. My um, uh, the founder of my company. I was a partner there. It was a technology education company. It was growing. It needed space, so we decided we're going to build our own campus as opposed to you know just renting one. And it was a custom campus, twenty-seven thousand square feet, four and a half million dollars. And that was my first exposure to real estate. So I started in reverse, right? Most people start with a single family rental in Kansas City that costs sixty thousand dollars. And here here I was starting with basically playing with four and a half million bucks and making huge mistakes that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So so it was a great learning experience. Uh, It took uh, 10 months to to do the build and I think I slept for about 10 minutes. Um, So uh, but uh, at the end of it, I I knew a lot of stuff, right? So I, I would, you know, air conditioning systems, egress, fire codes, you know, occupancy levels, that all of that stuff comes in when you're building something from scratch in, in Taxifornia, where, you know, you make one mistake and you basically added $100,000 in impact fees. So, um, yeah, <laughs> incredible experience, right? And two years later, ran out of space again and had to do it all over again. But this time, um, it was a larger building, 33,000 square feet. It was a larger project, $7.5 million, And we didn't quite have the money to do it ourselves as a company. So this time, we had to bring in investors, right? And so uh, he and I basically pitched the project to a bunch of rich doctors here in Fremont, California. And, uh, and to surprise, surprise, in a single meeting, all of them sign up. What we didn't realize is that in the syndication industry, we were supposed to charge them a 5% development <laughs> fee and a 30-70 split, and we didn't charge any of those things, right? So they're like, yep. suckers, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and and uh, but it was a great experience. I mean, it, it, we, we basically did a syndication without even knowing the word syndication, right? It took me five years to figure out that what I'd done was a syndication. I'm sure I broke every, every SEC rule out there. But that, <laughs> it wasn't our intent to be real estate investors, right? We were just trying to basically... Right build a building for our technology businesses use. So I'm, I'm sure the SEC would look at it kindly. 
So, so did that. And so I really enjoyed the process of interacting with these passive doctor investors and, you know, answering their questions as we were going through the whole process. And, and, and we basically chunked out the building and built everybody their own suite and then rented it back from them as a business. So now, the, now 11 years later, the suite building still rented uh, back to us. All the investors are really happy. And so I realized that real estate could be a win, 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 win. This was a win for my business, win for me personally. I owned one of the suites, a win for these investors and, and a win for my students who got a bigger campus to run around in. And so it, was a, it really addicted me to real estate. And so then I started basically going the other way. I, I bought 10 single family homes. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an amateur data scientist. I do a huge amount of research that I put out on the internet. There's 10, 15,000 people a year following that research. And the research led me to a city called Madeira, California, which incidentally was the hardest hit in 2008. And so um, I, I'm one of these weird people. When I go in, I, I go all in. So I bought 10 single family homes in Madeira in a single year. Um, and uh, my family thought I was insane, right? But I was looking at the mathematics of it all saying, so it cost $225,000 to build this. And I'm buying it from the bank at $90,000. And I understand that when I'm buying it, I'm still getting $1,000 in rent. So I'm cash flowing the first year. But, and sooner or later, given the cost of construction is 225, there will be a reversion to the mean. And it might take 10 years to get there. Who gives an M, right? Yeah. In the meantime, I'm making money. So everything that my family said didn't make any sense to me. So when I bought, by the time I bought the third one, everybody in my family thought I was insane, right? So it's like, the, you know, the sky was falling, right? And I'm like, well, let it fall because I'm still making a thousand bucks a month on every property while it's <laughs> exactly. falling. Exactly. So I'm I'm okay with it, you know, falling for a while. So that that worked out really well, and you know, I still own those ten homes, and they're they're up to about a quarter million. They're each of them is worth about a quarter million now. And so then I got cocky. I got crazy cocky. I was like, I know everything. I know all this shit. And I go to <laughs> Chicago, and I buy ten triplexes. And that was a total unmitigated disaster, like, you know, five lights flashing sort of disaster because I was just looking, you know, in California, I was buying brand new coffin and broad 2005 homes. And here I went and bought properties that were 110 years old, not knowing the difference, right? Yeah. Imagine I had every kind of issue imaginable and I didn't understand this concept of demographics and how it's everything in real estate, right? To me, my wonderful audience in Madeira, California was the same audience as South Chicago, right? And uh, it wasn't. I had actually purchased in one of the worst neighborhoods in all of, all of the country. And it took me six years to pull myself, my million and a half out of those 10 triplexes, duplexes. And and, and each year, the pain got worse. I mean, it got worse and worse and worse. And he's like, oh, my God, every possible thing that can happen, fire, trees falling on roofs. I mean, everything happens, right? I simultaneously had seven evictions going in a portfolio that was only 35 tenants, right? 20% wow. of my, my units yeah. eviction. And so it was stunning. And the pain of it led me to a realization that one of the ways you give back to the world, of course, you give in charity. One of the ways that you give back to people is time, right? And time with your family is critical. And there's so many people here in Silicon Valley running around trying to do these turnkeys, having absolutely no clue what they're doing, right? And just, and, and once they get stuck, they're spending, you know, every other weekend on the plane flying to wherever they're going, Detroit, South Chicago, wherever it is, and losing time with their loved ones. And I wanted to give that time back to people. So I started to devise a series of simple to use metrics 
that could be applied to any rental property in the US, you know, single family or multifamily, to figure out if it was a good place to buy or not. And eventually I split those metrics into two sets of five. There were five for cities and five for neighborhoods. And I started to teach them in San Francisco Bay Area meetups and eventually created a course on Udemy, which kind of went supernova. Right now there's, if you go to udemy.com slash real focus, you'll see there's about 1300 currently enrolled students taking that course. It's free, I, I gave it away, there's no sales pitch. The, the point is, I want those 1300 people to have their family time back and not make my mistake. I lost a million and a half. I didn't lose money, but I, I could have easily tripled the money in that you know, time frame because everything, all ships were rising. And so I lost that gain, that potential gain that I could have had if I knew all of this stuff. And so those metrics have become a very big deal for me. And, and now I also teach it in person. So I teach at about 20 conferences a year and I teach those metrics and people like it. And then eventually somebody gave me a nickname, which I've come to like, initially didn't like, uh, the mad scientist of multifamily, because I'm always constantly doing data and demographics driven experiments and posting them on Facebook so other people can see. And, um, and so it's been a, it's been a fun kind of progression. I, you know, the company that I worked for got sold in 2013. I transitioned over into multifamily, bought one property, bought another property. The number of investors just kept going up because people like this data driven geeky approach that I have. And I'm in Silicon Valley, there's geeks all around me and they're proud to be called geeks, right? They don't get offended by it. And, and they like this kind of data-driven thought process that's very deeply analytical. And so I tend to attract those sorts of people to me. So last week we crossed the thousand investor mark. And um, wow. last, um, you know, next week we're gonna cross the 200 million in assets mark. So we're simultaneously gonna cross the 2000 unit and the 200 million in asset mark next uh, two weeks from now. So um, just, um, snowballed that's yeah that's amazing that that sounds like a whirlwind of of, of also diff, many different directions that we could take this in um i i guess the first question i would have is, is along your journey um i i guess was it was it at that stage at the university um building out that building and just kind of accidentally falling into real estate is that when you first started really falling in love with real estate and multifamily investing it was the second project, not the first one. Because the first one I was just learning and I was just terrified by making mistakes, right? Yeah. The second time when I was doing it, I was adding architectural elements and adding, uh, you know, I, I, you know with, with, with my CEO's assistance, I was able to basically take land outside the building, 900 square feet, and build a circular cylindrical lobby with a 22-foot with a ceiling and a glass dome. So the second time I was enjoying myself, right? I know some, some of this stuff I know and my CEO was so brilliant at all these things and he was helping me. And so it, it became more fun the second time where it was just sheer terror the first time. And, and that's, I think, when I started looking at this real estate thing saying, there's so many amazing things here that I don't get in my business, like this concept of depreciation, right? Because I, I own one of those, those um, suites and I was like, this is really weird. How can something brand new be depreciated like this? And the short answer is the law allows it. Doesn't make any sense. But yeah. it's like in our country, the tax laws were mostly written by, written by rich multifamily guys to suit rich multifamily guys. And, and that's the way it's continued. Even in 2017, where 
you know, a lot of the 1031 benefits were watered down. A lot of the single family stuff was watered down. They put in salt, which is state and local taxes, exemptions were removed. And all of those were gifted back to multifamily in terms of bonus depreciation, accelerated depreciation, all kinds of taxation benefits to LLCs. And it was like, wow, I mean, I need to align myself. I can't change yeah. the world. I'm not a politician, right, or, or a leader. I need to align myself with the way the world works. And the world definitely works in favor of A, companies, and B, multifamily guys. And so once I started realizing that, that was the direction I wanted to head in. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. I think that, you know, a lot of investors now, they're seeing me like, okay, so I can get in into and participate in these multifamily deals, real estate in general. Um, and really, uh, as far as the IRS is concerned, as far as their tax return is concerned, it, it looks like they're making nothing. Or they're even in some nothing. cases- le- No, no, losing. less. They're, ma- they're losing money. So, yeah. so here's an anecdote. So uh, one of my friends is a, is a teacher called Rod Cleef, and he had invited me to teach at his conference in San Diego. So I'm teaching at the conference in San Diego and my phone keeps going off, right? So text messaging keeps going off. And then I realize that the guy that's texting me is sitting in front of me, right? So his name is KK. He's one of my investors and he's invested in a property called Windward Forest, which is in, which is in uh, you know, uh, Atlanta. I bought it last year in September. And KK is texting me furiously saying, I have to file my tax returns in the next three hours and you have sent me the wrong K-1. And I said, so eventually I get off the podium, I go over to him and say, well, what's the problem with the K-1? And he says, I invested $75,000 with you. My K-1 says minus 75. How is that even possible, right? And I said, well, have you heard of this thing called bonus depreciation? They just yeah. came out with it 100% depreciation. <laughs> I was able to take advantage of that. The property has $3.2 million in depreciation. When you chop that amongst uh, you know, 30 plus investors, that's your share. And he was like, no, 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 this, this can't be right. You know, in the past, it used to be like 10,000 or 15. It can't be 75. So I said, okay, I grab my laptop. I write a letter to my CPA, right, with him watching. And I click send. And five minutes later, the response comes back and says, every single syndication client that I have is asking me the same question. The numbers are right. Please send them this email. Right? <laughs> so I just turned yeah. the laptop around and showed it to him and said, look, the law is the law. Let's not talk about the ethics of this. The law is the law, right? Yeah. You got a minus $75,000 you know, write-off on your $75,000 investment because it wasn't just you. Everyone that invested in this syndication got it thanks to the new tax laws. And I think that his job probably hit the floor three times. It, that's amazing. Magical. Yeah. You're exactly right, Anna. And I think that's something that, that some people don't exactly realize if they haven't done this before. Um, but people that know it are are well, well aware of it. And, and and that's a big part of why a lot of high net worth investors invest in real estate. Well, I think yeah, I think all parts of real estate have that benefit. But multifamily is just insane. I mean, we are in the ninth year of a cycle, right? Rents have gone up like crazy, right? So like we've had, you know, if you look at the 30-year trend of rent increases, it was 2%. Rents would, rents would always track with inflation, right? So in fact, if you look at a chart from 1950 to mid-1980s and you say, okay, give me inflation and then give me rents, they're almost touching each other continuously for 35 years. And then in the mid-80s, something happened where rents basically started to separate from, uh, from inflation. My theory is that for a very long time, we had access to cheap building materials from everywhere. You know, cheap 
we cheap wood that comes that comes in from from Canada. We had cheap labor coming in from Mexico. We had cheap everything else coming in from China, and we were just building and building and building everything at sixty, seventy, eighty dollars a square foot. And then at some point, those countries started building themselves. Right, Mexico started building cities with ten million people. China builds a New York every three months, and when that happened the cost of construction became more real. It wasn't this subsidized cost that we had for the last four or five decades. And now we see cost of construction going up six, seven, eight, nine 9% every year, even though overall inflation is under 2%. And because of that, things have completely gotten out of whack, right? And so here we are in the ninth year of a massive cycle where rents have gone up 50, 60%, some absurd number. And last month, we had the largest growth in occupancy since 2001, right? And people tell me I'm at the end of the cycle and I go, are you looking at the data, right? Yeah. Between, between, Mar between April 2019 and May 2019, occupancy in the United States increased from about 95.5% to 96.1%. A 0.6% jump in a single month? Wow. That hasn't happened for 18 years. Right, and that is happening now, which is why when people tell me that this is the end of the cycle, I believe that these people are basically simply saying these things because it's fashionable to say that at this point in the cycle, because nobody, nobody stops you. My question is, how is it that the long-term trend was 2%, right? And was 2% for 40 or 50 years, and has been 3% or greater for the last seven years, including 6% in some years, which is absurd, that's three times a long-term trend. But if this is the end, then why is the rent growth still at over 3% in the United States? How could it be the end and still be over 3%? Somewhere, your logic breaks down. So to me, I think that we are in a super cycle for multifamily. Obviously, that doesn't mean that we won't suffer during a recession. There's a recession coming, it's probably next right, year. Right. And we will have negative rent growth in that recession, granted. Nobody's complaining about that because I believe that when that recession ends, give it six months, you're going to be right back into the multifamily super cycle. You're going to be right back in declining home ownership. Home ownership has now been declining 14 years. And you know what's interesting, Evan? It started declining before the great crash. The, the year of highest ownership in the US was 2005. Then it started to decline. And once again, it's tied back to the fact that con construction costs were becoming so high that they were so out of whack with inflation that more and more people were not available, afford, able to buy homes. And people say, there's so much new construction going on. Could you please go and Google that? Because in California, and that's the state I live in, right? So, you know, sixth largest economy in the world. Last year, we built less homes in California with 4% interest rates, then we built in the 80s with interest rates being at 22%. How could there be too many homes? Yeah. We have a population that is 25 million people more than it was in the 80s, and we built less homes in a year when you know, your, your, your average interest rate is 4%. Anybody who says we're building too much simply is ignoring the data. Yeah. We're not I, building I, too much. I think you're exactly right. And I think there is a, a, a long-term trend toward, um, toward family renting and, and also having that mobility too. I think that's a big part of it is families want more mobility and care less about 
um, the larger suburban home and more about the ability to move around the world or, or have that control. They do. They do. If you look at the Wall Street Journal and Appfolio uh, surveys, millennials place a higher uh, emphasis on mobility and freedom than any previous generation, where previous generations placed a higher um, stress on the brag ratio of owning a single family home. It was very important to them, where right. millennials, their psyche has been hurt by the 2008 disaster that their parents went through. And they don't want to be part, any part of that disaster. They don't want to, and, and today homes are more expensive than they were in 2006, right? We've now gotten to the point where as a country, you're now paying more than you were paying in 2006, yeah. right? And, and unfortunately, millennials don't make as much money as Generation X, right? Because they, 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 they haven't gotten the inflation-adjusted benefits that people were getting in previous generations. So they're basically their salary on an inflation-adjusted basis has gone down while home prices have gone up. And so the... Every academic, I'm not talking about real estate salespeople, because honestly, in real estate, we say a lot of stuff that isn't true. But people that are academics, if you want to read their, their um, very boring and academic white papers on the subject, the only conclusion that you can come to is that over the next 30 years, the homeownership rate is going to decline, decline a lot, or decline a heck of a lot. Those are your three yeah. choices. They actually don't have a scenario for it being flat. Right. There is up. no scenario. Right. Or going yeah. up. I mean, not even close. Right. So that the decline, the, 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 the slowest decline is it declines to 55 you know, percent. Well, in a, in a country where it's currently at 62 percent, if it declines to 55, that's 7 percent. You're looking yeah. at tens of millions of units. Where are they going to come from when we can't even build 300,000 units of multifamily at the peak of the, the cycle? Nobody yeah. knows the answer to that. No, and no that one has the answer. Yeah, and honestly, that that raises a, a whole nother slew of questions, especially from my background in, in development. Um, you know, there's so many barriers to entry for development um, for multifamily. And they get worse every year, right? Every yeah, yeah, and they keep getting worse and worse. I mean, you have NIMBYism, you have communities that are just putting in all these restrictions on, you know, what is allowed, what isn't allowed. They give more and more control to community groups, which I'm all for getting the community involved, but people just don't realize that, change is inevitable. Um, and and it, change isn't all good. I mean, it, it, here, here we have a situation where a small group of homeowners, primarily because they want to continue seeing their homes go up, block any kind of multifamily or high density projects in the name of you know, pollution or in the name of noise. But the truth is, the rest of the world is like that. If you go to other Western countries, you will not find single family zoning sometimes in entire cities. There is no such thing as single family yeah. zoning. Everything's zoned multifamily and you can build a single family there if you like, right? It's only here that with our vast resources and our vast land that we had access to that we did this. And now basically we're struggling to go back to something that's common sense, which is we need more zoning because we simply don't have the ability to construct more single family homes. Also, America hasn't built new freeways really in the last three decades. If you look at you know, our freeway system, we've added maybe 1% in the last three right. decades. So as you run out of usable land, if you don't build another layer of freeways beyond that, another, you know, another ring, well, then you can't use that land. So now 
basically people are trying to simply use the land that's already inside the circle of, of freeways and that land keeps going up in, in price and make becoming more and more and more expensive. And eventually you end up just in this crazy situation where no one can afford single family and no one can afford multifamily. And that's yeah. the exact situation that we're in. It's, it's absurd and true. And I, and I can tell, I mean, it, it, I can hear your passion behind it. And also um, I, I can hear a lot of your, your, your data uh, mindset and in your ability to, to decipher that data in a very meaningful um, and, and synthesize that data in a meaningful way. Um, it, has that helped you in your ability to raise capital and, and, and get capital into all of your deals? Certainly, because because one of the benefits that I have is I I'm, I live in Silicon Valley, right? So you know if you go and Google you know Monster.com, the most lucrative new job in America happens to be data scientist, right? So you know all these technology companies they have this ever growing pile of data, and you're they're trying to find people that can kind of right. sift through this and come up with actionable golden nugget nuggets, right? People you know in the Valley people say data is the oil of the 21st century, right? <laughs> and that's really true because if you understand data and you have the ability to take data and create actionable insights, you become unique in a, in a, in a group of people. And so when I make these kinds of predictions and people see them come true, they're saying, you know, Neil, what you're doing is amazing. And I'm saying, no, I just have been trained for this. Actually, there are tens of thousands of people like me. They just don't work in real estate. Right? Yeah. So I'm very lucky in that there's not enough, you know, data-driven guys in real estate. I started forecasting Tucson to become, you know, three years ago, I was talking about Las Vegas having the highest rent growth in America. And people would just laugh to my face. I would go to a, you know, a meetup group and start teaching and basically saying, you know, I'm looking at Vegas becoming highest rent growth in America. And they would be like, you're crazy. Vegas got hit the hardest. And they, in their mind, the conversation ended there. But in my mind, the conversation started there because what I said three years ago is that every city that got hit the hardest in 2008 would underbuild, would underbuild. They simply would not build because numbers would not pencil out, lenders would not lend, right? And everyone would be too afraid, right? Mindset yeah. issues. Emotion, so now yeah. if you look at all of the top cities in America, it leads, reads like a who's who list of 2008, you know, catastrophes, right? So you've got Vegas, Orlando, Phoenix, Orlando, yeah, yep. Atlanta to some extent, right? So the, the cities that got slammed didn't build anything from 2018 to 2008 to 2014. And those cities were growing, right? Phoenix has the highest population growth in America. Maricopa County, which is the seat of Phoenix, is the fastest growing county in America. Clark County, which Las Vegas is part of, is the second fastest growing county in America. So you have all these places where population growth is insane and nobody builds anything for a lot of time. Well, you end up with underdevelopment. And so you know, for a year now, Las Vegas has been the reigning, reigning champion. And then I started talking about Tucson among small markets being the reigning champion. And then eventually nobody listened to me. So I went and bought something in Tucson about, you know, a number of months ago. And guess what? Read Yardi Matrix's newsletter this month. Read it for last month. It's, you know, it's, it's number one in the US. Sorry. So I got to turn off all the phones. Not just one. <laughs> I love it. So, so tell me about going into your first multifamily investment. Well, for me, it was a it was a fourteen it was a twelve unit, and it was a, it was in a better part of Chicago than some of the others. It was a new you know new buildings. Sorry, it was a it was a new um, new build. It was a two thousand five build, 
And it allowed me to contrast that with my other properties in Chicago and really learn a lot about not just the demographics of the place, but also the, the, the kind of product that I was buying. So I learned the difference between, you know, a building that was basically siding to a building that is, um, to a building that somebody really wants me. Um, so <laughs> to, to something that was brick and, and how does that impact your returns? How does that impact your, your gas bill, for example, right? Those sorts of things. So it was, it was very insightful to be able to take that and start implementing it on the larger properties when I started buying 200 and 300 and 350 unit properties, still made tons and tons of mistakes there, right? But my goal was mistakes are okay, you just have to learn from them and, and, and see if you can write a hypothesis that's better and try that out on your next property and see if it worked. And if it worked, then you know, write a better one and continuously improve, right? That, you know, Silicon Valley sort of burns this into your head that you have to have continuous improvement, right? And, and, and systems and processes to support and, and as you get better. So that's what I really enjoyed. But what I, what I love the most about real estate is this. When, in, when I was in technology, you'd get an idea and you'd have three to six months of runway. And then people smarter than you, faster than you, with more resources than you, would get $20 million from a VC and just stomp all over you in the next six months. But what I see in real estate is that when you have a, a, an advantage over other people, and my company, I believe, has three advantages, you, you maintain those advantages sometimes for decades. And that's why I would never go back to technology because the, the number of people that are smarter than me over there is so ridiculous that, yeah. you know, I'm, I can't be in the top of any, any room, right? I, I'm kind of in the middle of the rooms or in the bottom half of rooms. And whereas in real estate, I'm not saying I'm the smartest guy. I'm saying I'm the guy, I'm the guy that's come from that other room and knows some things that all these super smart guys in real estate don't know and don't care to learn. And so it's an advantage that you tend to get, you know, for years. For example, you know, my company is two thirds people in the Philippines and these people in the Philippines do everything. I mean, you can't imagine all of the stuff that in my company that gets done wow. in, in the Philippines. And, and I hire these superstars that are brilliant and they have computer science degrees and they work, you know, Pacific hours. They work from eight to six Pacific time, 50 hours a week and do amazing stuff for my properties and get paid $6 and 50 cents an hour right? How do you beat that? How do you beat that? Yeah. People are like, you know, no, these people are not very smart. And the short answer is, well, you don't know how to find the right people. My, mine are fantastically smart, right? And, and almost what I'm humbled by constantly is that when I do a task, if I figure out the right way of doing that task and assign it to a really smart, you know, virtual assistant, he's always going to do it better than me. Why? Because he's got more time. If I did it, in 30 minutes and he does it in an hour or she does it in an hour, that's gonna cost me $12 instead of six, but they've got twice the amount of time. They yeah. don't need to do it in a hurry. They can check off every single box. They can follow every single process. So I'm constantly humbled by the fact that all these things that I thought I was good at, these people are doing it much better than I am with higher levels of consistency and higher levels of result. And, and, and that's amazing to me. Yeah, and I love that you're bringing that up because we, so we have a, a lady, Kimmy, in the Philippines who helps us on the podcast and, and does all the behind the scenes, pay her $5 an hour. And you're right, you know, it's something that would take me 30 minutes to an hour, it takes her two to three hours. Um, but it's, it's, it's so time off of my plate. Yeah, it's priceless. 
Um, and, and some of them get really, really good. I mean, some of my, my Philippine staff are actually technologists. So uh, there's one guy who's uh, researching software to grab LinkedIn. You know, if you, if, you don't, if, if you connect with LinkedIn people, you get their email address. But what if they don't connect, right? Well, there's software out there that does it. They have found it in the Philippines. I didn't know about this software. Huh. As they were working on it, they said, there's a software called Apollo, Apollo.ai. And can we get a $10 subscription to the software so we can basically do this stuff? And I was like, wow. oh, this, I, I looked at the software. It was amazing. Then they found another software that automated all of our LinkedIn outreach. It's called Meet Leonard. Meet, L-E-O-N-A-R-D. And I looked at the software and I was like, this is insane. I would have never found this software because I didn't yeah. have the time. And yeah. they had the time and they found it. And it's just amazing what you can do when you get to that level with these people. You, you sustainable advantages that you keep for decades in real estate. But all the technology guys, I mean, they know about outsourcing. Two-thirds of all the tech work gets done outside the U.S. anyway. So yeah. you don't get to keep that advantage for more than a few months. That's amazing. So, so what are, are you doing anything as far as the data science side that, that you're doing in the Philippines? So they, they helped me gather data. So for example, one of the websites that I'm in love with is called, uh, oddly enough, the departmentofnumbers.com. There is an actual website called wow. deptofnumbers.com. And there's a ton of data on there that is refreshed every month, especially job data, right? And, and obviously we wanna keep a track of job data. Um, your Tucson's up there, for example. Uh, and, and they gra grab that information and they put it in different tabs. Then they basically link it together to see the, if they can see any kind of trends and they share that information with me. And I share it on my Facebook and on my podcast and things like that. So they helped me with basically taking data and churning through it and turning it into insights. They're not at the level where they can create that process, but they're definitely at the level where they can contribute to that process and even tweak it and improve it over time. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And it sounds like you know they can get you... 80% of the way there, and then you take the last 20% and add the real value. Well, it's 90-10. In my case, the, the way I look at it is I say, I wanted to work 100 hours a day, and it has taken me five years of working with virtual assistants to achieve it. I now work 100 hours every day. 10 of them That's come amazing. from me. 90 come from other people. That's awesome. I love that. So, so what as far as, um, are, are they doing any other systems to help it sounds like they're helping you also with, with investor relations and, and, and creating new contacts. This, this meeting, I mean, this podcast was arranged by one of my virtual assistants. And so, you know, she, she made sure that she reminded me. Uh, she reminds me about every meeting. Um, she, if it's an investor, she calls them 15 minutes before. She calls them the day before and then calls them 15 minutes before. Also sends them a text message to make sure that, and that improves my, my rate of you know, actual con conversation with investors. Right. And when I finish the call, I take three minutes to, um, to take my phone. And uh, you know, this is a video podcast, so I, I suppose I could show these kinds of things. So when I'm, when I'm done, I basically write notes, right? So these, these are my Slack notes. I write in a software called Slack yeah. and you can see all these notes and that's action items that my staff is taking with those investors, right? And on wow. and on and on, you got pages and pages of notes about investors that they're taking actions on. And so once again, they're saving enormous amounts of my time because I'm good at building systems and processes and templates. And, and, you know, assigning them to people and training them on those templates. And Slack is our, our chosen tool to do that because every, everything in our company has a Slack channel. And so that way, if I lose a person, 
the new person that comes in reads the Slack channel. It takes him several hours to read that Slack channel. But at the end of it, they really know what the last guy was doing. Wow. Yeah, that is a very good point. I mean, that's something that I think a lot of people worry about. And and we've had, we've set up like training videos as we're doing things and keep those on file for, for new hires. But I, I think that's a great point of, of keeping track of prior conversations and prior data um, well, through a the, Slack the, channel. The, the challenge with, with, with doing the, we do the videos also. We use a tool called Loom, L-O-O-M. It is a plugin in Chrome, it's free. And so whenever I wanna talk about a system or a process, I don't actually build uh, structured training programs. I don't do that because it takes too long. What I do is I put on this headset, and I click the Loom button in the Chrome browser, and then I start to talk. And uh, as I talk, I bring up web pages, I bring up Word files and Excel files, and I will you know, randomly start to build basically tables of what the reports look like. I'm not trying to do anything systematized. I'm simply trying to get all of my thoughts out in a stream of conscious five minute video. Hmm. And then when I'm done, Loom gives me, immediately gives me a link, and I plug that into a brand new Slack channel if this is a new thing, or in an existing Slack channel if it is. Now that video is sitting in, in Loom, right? And the moment that that virtual assistant reads that video, you know what's the first thing he's supposed to do? Turn that video now into a set of systems and processes and bullets and action items and sections, and send it back to me for editing. And I can tell you it's 10 times easier to edit that document than it is to write it from scratch. Hmm. And I don't think I would have written a bunch of these articles ever if that was the way to do it. So I basically do it in an extremely unstructured stream of consciousness format, and then they bring it back to me and I edit it. So now I'm doing that last 10% of the work because when I'm talking, I, I can just think. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to type stuff out. Nothing is slowing me down. I'm just simply thinking, right? And that video, that Loom video is forever going to be in that Slack channel. So the next guy that comes in can watch that video. And then the, the, the document that they've created from it also gets thrown into that Slack channel and they get pinned. What that means is there might be 10,000 uh, posts in that Slack channel, but only a few dozen items that are pinned. So you can always go back and find those things. So in a way, we, don't, we never had to write manuals or create folders or create websites or intranets. Slack is our intranet. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, Neil, I feel like we could go on for hours and hours. Uh, there's a lot of value in here, uh, but let's jump into our monumental questions. So what does success mean to you? Success means being able to do what you want. Um, success means not feeling any bounds. Success means if um, I wanted to go off to backpack in, 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 in Europe with my 17-year-old next month, that I can do it. Success is not money. Uh, success is feeling a sense of achievement and feeling in control of your destiny. I love that. Yeah, it's a, it's a sense of achievement and destiny. I completely agree. Um, do you have a morning ritual or a daily habit that contributes to your successful day? Um, well, it's actually an evening habit. So what I do is before I end for the day, I plan my next day and I take five minutes to make sure that my next day is set up. I have a good understanding of what my calendar looks like. Often I'll make changes to it because I feel like it's not productive enough. Um, so I, I never finish my day until I'm done with this. I'm also extremely calendar driven. If I showed you my, my calendar, it's gridlocked. So there's almost never any uh, slots available in a given week. Obviously, there's slots in the future weeks. And I like being that way. I, I like having everything set up in a calendar 
Um, and, and you might say, well, that doesn't allow for free thinking. The short answer is I schedule free thinking times inside of that calendar. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's something I've been, I've been working on myself and getting better and better um, is, is setting aside time um, for that free thinking, for that self-development, for just random thoughts or journaling or reading, you know, pushing yourself to be learning. Um, I think is, is so huge and, and really pushes you to that next level. Absolutely. So what is your favorite book or book you're currently reading? There's no such thing as a favorite book for me. I think it's, it's whatever book, you know, catches my fancy at the, at the moment. The one that I like right now is called Traction. And, you know, there's a lot of great books about how to get started. Traction is about, okay, you got started. How do you get to the next level? And for somebody like me that has a company with, you know, 16, 17 people, I think that next level is what, what challenges me. So reading a book like Traction and, and understanding how to get from, you know, 16, 17 people to 1,600 people is, is very exciting. And what I like about Traction is it's very prescriptive in nature. It's not trying to say you should do this. It's trying to say this is exactly how about you, you know, how you go about doing this, you know, step by step, you know, A, B, C, here are the processes, right? I love prescriptive sort of books because I can immediately jump into implementation. So check out Traction. Yes, that's actually, uh, I'm reading principles right now, but Traction is next up on the list. Awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited for it. Um, well, Neil, honestly, like, I feel like we're, we're going to have to do another episode or two, um, because there's a few topics that I wanted to cover. We just did not have time. Um, but I would say in, in closing, how can people follow you or reach out to you? Well, I, I aggregate a massive amount of content. I'm, you know, more than 40 speakers that basically speak on my platform. Um, when I created the website, it was called Multifamily U, with U standing for university, multifamilyu.com. And then over time, I realized that it didn't make sense to just focus on multifamily. So it basically became a real estate uh, deep dive webinar platform because I, I saw people doing excellent podcasts and I, I know that there was enough there. So I didn't need to ever be a podcaster. I just am a, I'm subscribing to podcasts and listening to them myself. But there wasn't one for deep dive, you know, high content, 90 minute type webinars that you can learn from because there's some things you really need charts and graphs to learn from. And you can't do that over a podcast. So multifamilyu.com is basically that portal. We have 30,000 plus people a year that, that uh, watch, uh, that, that register for uh, webinars there. Um, my email address is neil, N-E-A-L, at multifamilyu.com. You know, send me an email. I'll definitely answer it. I love it. Well, guys, take Neil up on it. He is literally, as you've seen in this episode, he is chock full of knowledge. Um, he knows what he's talking about. He's an amazing resource um, and follow him. And if you all enjoyed today's podcast, uh, make sure to share it on social media. Tag me, tag Neil, um, put it on LinkedIn, put it on Instagram, wherever you are, Facebook, uh, let people know you're listening. And with that, have a monumental day. Thank you so much, Evan. Yes, glad to have you on, Neil. Oh, 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 oh,